everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Luke chapter 7. In the first 17 verses of Luke 7, we discuss the healing of the centurion's servant. And then we discuss the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. In verses 18 through 35 of Luke 7, we're going to discuss the message from John the Baptist to Jesus. And then the eulogy of Jesus over John the Baptist as Jesus tries to say good things about his forerunner. I'm going to splice in Matthew 11, my discussion of Matthew 11:2 2 through 19, because it exactly parallels our story here. And that splice begins now. Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? This is an interesting passage. So we're going to have to go through the psychology of John the Baptist while he was in prison. He was in prison in a place called Machaerus, which you can look up on Wikipedia. There's still a few columns there. It's a fortified hill. It was 25 miles. It was on the east side of the Jordan River, about 25 miles from the where it runs into the Dead Sea. And there's pictures of it on Wikipedia. You can look at it. It's a desolate place out there in the desert. desert. Now, he's out there. And you can imagine what he's thinking. He's preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's coming. One who is greater than I is coming. He expected the Messianic kingdom, and he ends up in jail, which is not exactly what he was probably expecting. But while he was there, he heard of the works of Christ. By the way, how did he hear him? His disciples came. We read that in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things, all the works that Jesus was doing. And so... John, having received some of his disciples and getting word, he then sent word by some more disciples back up to Galilee, sent them back up to Galilee to talk to Jesus and to ask him, are you the expected one, the Messiah, or shall we look for someone else? Now, first of all, let's talk about how John ended up in prison. It was because because he interfered in the sex life of the governing authority. Now, this is the sort of person John was. This is sort of the thing you normally don't do, but John the Baptist did it. You recall the story... Herod was married, excuse me, Herod had two brothers. He had several brothers, half-brothers, one of whom was called Herod Philip, and the other one was called Herod Philip. There were two Herod Philips. They were his brothers. The first of these Herod Philips married a woman named Herodias. Herodias had a daughter named Salome, and then Salome married the second Herod Philip. Well, Herodias didn't like John the Baptist. Herodias, the uh, Herod Antipas's sister-in-law, didn't like John the Baptist because he he kept preaching against the immoral, incestuous, illegal relationship that Herodias had with Herod Antipas. But Herod liked to listen to John. He was fascinated by his preaching, by his religious uh, proclaiming of the kingdom. And so uh, Herod had to lock him up because he, he was scared he might start a revolution or something, bring the Romans down on his head. But he wasn't going to kill him because he liked to listen to him. Well, eventually, of course, John was killed because Salome, Herodias' daughter by the second Herod Philip brother, she did a sexy dance, and Herod was so pleased, he said, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. Salome went to Herodias and said, what shall I ask for, Mama? And Herodias said, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter, and since Herod Antipas had made such a big deal out of it, a public proclamation, I'll give you anything, you sexy Salome, anything you want. He had to go through with it, and he killed John the Baptist. And the application of that little story is don't don't let women use your their curves and their and their sex on you to do something that leads more men into trouble. 
Just look at Washington, D.C. about that. It's just one thing after. Don't do that. Well, Herod did it. And John the Baptist dies. But this is before he was dead now. Uh, and he's wondering about Jesus. Now, he's probably, now there's a question of why those disciples came, or excuse me, why did John send those disciples up to Jesus and ask, are you the Messiah or not? It sounds like John is doubting. I really believe he was. But there were, well, first of all, let's go through the reasons why the disciples might have been skeptical of Jesus. They came to John and said, hey, what's going on up here? They're the ones who first raised the doubt in John the Baptist's mind by reporting the news. Why were they skeptical of Jesus? Well, there were plenty of reasons for them not to be skeptical of him. They were probably there when Jesus was baptized in water. John the Baptist publicly affirms Jesus as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit fell like a dove on Jesus' head. There's a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved son, believe him. And then Jesus, after that, had gone around doing earth-shaking miracles all over Galilee. Why, did, why should they doubt? Well, there were reasons that they could doubt. First of all, there could be personal reasons of jealousy. Jesus' ministry is booming and ours is not. And our master's in jail and Jesus is out there preaching like crazy. And he's got a lot more disciples than we do. Well, you know how people are about that. Well, it could be Jesus didn't fast and live austerely like John the Baptist did. He's up there eating and feasting. John the Baptist, he was wearing animal skins and leather belts and eating locusts and honey. And Jesus is in the in the villages eating the Pharisees and having a good old time. That doesn't sound like the Messiah to me, these disciples could have said. But the ultimate reason I believe that the disciples were wondering and John the Baptist was wondering is if Jesus was the Messiah, why did he let John get captured and put into prison? That's not a Messiah-like thing to do. So I believe they were, they were wondering about Jesus. Now, why did Jesus send more than one disciple up to Galilee to find Jesus? Why, why not just one? Well, here's some options. Maybe it was more honorable to Jesus to send more than one. This is John Gill's idea. Well, maybe he could send more than one because the, whatever Jesus said, it would be a more reliable witness to what Jesus had replied. You know, one person can always twist things. you got two people as a check on that. Uh, so that makes sense. And for whatever reason, John the Baptist sent two disciples, at least two, maybe more than two, disciples up to talk to Jesus. Now, we've, I've mentioned why the disciples might have doubted whether Jesus was the Messiah. How about John the Baptist? Now, here's some arguments that he was not doubting. He was just sending the disciples up there to reassure their lack of faith, but he never that wavered and doubted. I don't believe that either. I believe he, I can't prove it, but I believe he had some trouble sitting there in prison wondering, well, this is not exactly the way I thought it was going to turn out, God. I, I was the forerunner of the Messianic kingdom, and here I am in jail. Well, here's the argument that John the Baptist did not doubt. For As I said, he sent the disciples up there not to uh, assuage his doubt, but his disciples' doubt. Jesus had done so many miraculous signs. How could, Jesus, how could John doubt it? Because he, he received word of those signs from his disciples. The people the, all who were following Jesus thought he was the Messiah. Why shouldn't John the Baptist think he was the Messiah? And John the Baptist him, himself had seen the Holy Spirit fall on Jesus at Jesus' baptism in water, and he had heard God's voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now we can look at some scriptures that show that doesn't sound like John the Baptist was doubting, and of course this is before he was in jail. John 1 verse 15 John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. There's a plain statement that Jesus was preexistent, was the Messiah. John 1, verse 26. I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. And of course, the someone is the Messiah. Drop down to John 1, 33. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that's God, the Father, told me. The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
And of course, they then saw the Spirit like a dove descending. John 3, verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. So John knew that he was sent ahead of the Messiah, and he identified the Messiah, pointed him out. Why would he believe Jesus? Well, here's some arguments that John, in fact, was doubting and needed some reassurance. First of all, he was already in prison, as we just read in verse 2. Things probably began to appear incomprehensible to him. He had expected that Christ would speedily destroy the powers of darkness and judge the unrighteous, but instead of doing this, Jesus leaves him, his forerunner, helpless in prison. I think that's it right there. Now, how can we apply this to modern-day circumstances? Often our discouragement in our circumstances overcomes our faith in Jesus' power. It is just amazing what discouragement will do to you. After you've seen God work over and over and over again to rescue you, the last jam you get in, you say, this is it. He's never going to get me out of this one. So it's a common human psychology that John the Baptist is exhibiting here. We go to verse 4 and 5 in Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to them, the disciples from John that came to him. And by the way, these disciples are John's disciples, not Jesus' disciples. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Jesus is not going to give words to argue. He's just going to give evidence. The blind receive sight, evidence number one. The lame walk, evidence number two. The leopards are cleansed, evidence number three. The deaf hear, evidence number four. The dead are raised up, evidence number five. And the poor have the gospel preached to them, evidence number six. Now, why would that be evidence? Well, because these miracles were fulfillments of messianic prophecies, which I'm going to show you as we go through. We'll start with evidence number one, sight. The blind receive sight here in verse 5. Before I do that, though, I want to point out how these physical healings parallel the spiritual new birth. What happens when a blind man sees the Lord and gets saved? He has spiritual sight. And when lepers are cleansed, that's a physical cleansing, but we are spiritually cleansed from our sin when Jesus washes us with his blood. And when the deaf hear physically, that parallels the fact that we are spiritually deaf. We don't hear the words of God, but now when the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts, we hear the words of Jesus and understand them. The dead are raised up physically, but likewise, the, dead in, uh, the old man is dead, as Paul says, but we've been raised up into new life spiritually. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And of course, we have, we're the poor, whether they're spiritually poor or materially poor, doesn't matter. They have the gospel preached to them. We have the gospel preached to us. All right, so let's look at some of these arguments here. Sight. Let's look at some scriptures that show that Jesus was fulfilling these Old Testament messianic scriptures. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. This happened in Matthew 9.30. Remember, there was two blind men following him from Jairus' house to Peter's house at Capernaum. And Jesus healed them, Matthew 9.30, and their eyes were opened. And then here Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist, the lame walk. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah 35.6. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, or streams in the wilderness. So there you go. The lame are leaping like a deer. Another messianic prophecy, and, and Jesus says, hey, the lame are walking, John. John's disciples, we've already seen this in Matthew 9, verse 2, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a famous instance where, they, where his four friends let, him, let the paralytic down in a hole in the roof so they could get around the Pharisees who were blocking the door. And Jesus 
continues to tell the, the disciples of John the Baptist that the lepers are cleansed. That happened in Matthew 8, 3. And remember, leprosy is an incurable disease, and it was considered a messianic miracle when lepers are cleansed. Matthew 8, 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This was at the beginning of his Capernaum ministry. Deaf. How about deaf? When Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist that the deaf hear, Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, of the deaf will be unstopped. Well, we don't have an occasion of this in Matthew, but we can go to Mark chapter 7, verse 33. Jesus took him aside from the crowd, the deaf man, and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, so the deaf mute man was healed. How about raised from the dead? Jesus told the disciples of John the Baptist, look, people are being raised from the dead by my ministry, and you doubt that I'm the Messiah? Matthew 9:18. while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him. This is Jairus. And said, my daughter has just died. His little 12-year-old daughter had just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So the dead are being raised. And also the other famous resurrection is in Luke 7:15. The dead man, who was the widow of Nain's son, sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. I just noticed that I don't have an Old Testament prophecy which was fulfilled by Jesus raising people from the dead. But we have Old Testament prophecies for everything else, including this fact that the that the gospel was preached to the poor, as Jesus told the disciples. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. That's Isaiah. This was fulfilled in Luke 4.18, which is a direct quote from Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit, of, this is Jesus speaking, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. I see a direct quote. It's, a, it's close enough to quote. The New, New American Standard Bible capitalizes the whole verse, which means that it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. Now, who are the poor that are being preached to? There are two options here. It could be the materially poor. And the Pharisees thought that you were cursed if you were poor. Kind of like uh, Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagan, you know, the faith people. Hey, you're poverty. That shows you're not living a godly life. Or it could refer to the spiritually poor. They had no knowledge of spiritual things. It could refer to both. doesn't really matter here. The gospel was being preached to them. Verse 6 in Matthew 11. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, this is sort of a real gentle implied rebuke of the disciples of John the Baptist. He's saying, look, you don't want to take offense at me. You don't want to stumble because John the Baptist is in prison because you're going to be blessed if you don't stumble. The NIV translates this as blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus didn't want John to fall prey to doubt and discouragement. So he sends down there and says, hold on, John, don't be discouraged. I've given you plenty of evidence that I'm the, the Messiah. Lots and lots and lots of evidence. You don't need to be discouraged. Now, Jesus says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Here's some reasons why the Jews were offended at Jesus. And this is all from the imaginative John Gill. Here's why the Jews were offended. He had a low birth, carpenter's son. His parents were poor. They were poverty stricken. They claimed that he was born of a virgin. Or Jesus was claimed, or it was claimed that Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, that's nutty. He was born in the look down upon regional Galilee. And, uh, well, actually, he was born in, in um, 
Bethlehem. That's a mistake in my notes here. He was born in Bethlehem, but he lived in the uh, looked down upon region of Galilee and Nazareth. He was not educated in the proper schools. He was a carpenter, a menial worker. His disciples were poor and ignorant, most of them fishermen. One of his disciples was a hated tax collector who were utterly despised. His audiences were mostly poor and ignorant. Well, yeah, a lot of people took offense at Jesus. He lived with rejection his whole life, and Jesus did not want John the Baptist to reject him. Now, here are some reasons why John the Baptist's disciples might be offended by Jesus. And I've already mentioned this in the previous verse. I'll mention it again. Neither Jesus nor his disciples fasted, but John the Baptist was fasting. Christ's kingdom didn't look like a glorious messianic kingdom like they expected. I mean, after all, their, their master is in prison. And there was so much persecution and affliction following Christ everywhere Jesus went. The Pharisees were on his case. That didn't sound like the Messiah to them. They were confused. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As these men were going away, the, the disciples of John the Baptist were going back to report to John in prison at Macarius. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Now what Jesus is doing here, he's trying to rehabilitate John the Baptist because he just finished saying, Hey, John, don't take offense at me. He had to give all this evidence that he was the Messiah and it made it look like John the Baptist was doubting which he was probably, oh, you can't prove it, but he probably was doubting, and that might bring John the Baptist down in the eyes of the crowd. Jesus didn't want that to happen. So he starts building up John the Baptist, and as he does this, when we finish looking at this, we'll see that John the Baptist is one of the greatest, the greatest Old Testament prophets there was. So Jesus said, did you go out there to see John? Did you go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind? This was a rhetorical question. The answer that Jesus expected was no, of course not. You didn't go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind. What does that refer to, by the way? John Gill says that it probably refers to John's gestures in preaching as he's shaking his arms around. That's like a reed being shaken in the wind. And Jesus' implied rebuke went like this. Did you go out there just for the oratorical show to watch him shake his hands around? Or did you want to hear what he actually had to say? And since you went to hear his doctrine, you know how great that doctrine was. You know what a powerful message he was preaching. So you ought to maintain your respect for him. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think that what John, uh, what Jesus was referring to, a reed shaken by the wind, he was meaning this. Did you go out into the desert to see an unstable, inconstant, irresolute man? No. If you did go out to see that, you were sadly mistaken, because John was steady and uniform in his testimony of Christ. He was a brave man. He was risking his life out there preaching. Remember, he told the Pharisees the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, thus predicting their ultimate downfall in AD 70. So he was a brave man. He was not a reed shaking in the wilderness. So again, Jesus is doing this to show that Jesus was brave and we ought not to look down upon him just because he's showing a little bit of doubt right now. We go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 8. Jesus continues, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Again, this is a rhetorical question expecting no for an answer because John the Baptist was wearing hairy animal skins and leather belts. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces, Jesus says, and obviously John the Baptist never was in a king's palace. In fact, right now he's in jail. Did you expect to see a flattering courtier sucking up to power? If so, you were sadly mistaken. John didn't suck up to Herod when Herod married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, in that story I just told you. He had a lot of courage to stand up to John to uh, Herod Antipas, and it eventually got him thrown in jail. And, of course, we know now that it eventually got John killed. Now, Adam Clark's got a great rebuke of worldly preachers. I want to read this. It's written in 18, uh, 19th century language, but 
it's applicable to so many people with their 16,000 square foot houses, their multi-multi-million dollar houses, these so-called ministers of the gospel. Here's the quote. Accepting the mere color of his clothes, we can scarcely now distinguish a preacher of the gospel, whether in the establishment of the country or out of it, from the merest worldly man. Ruffles, powder, and fribble seem universally to prevail. Thus the church and the word begin to shake hands. The church and the world begin to shake hands, the latter still retaining its enmity to God. How can those who profess to preach the doctrine of the cross act in this way? Benny Hinn, are you listening? How can you act this way? Kenneth Copeland is not a worldly-minded preacher in the most peculiar sense, an abomination in the eyes of the Lord? Benny Hinn, are you listening? Matthew 11, verse 9. Jesus continues, but what did you go out to see? He's still asking rhetorical questions. This time, though, he expects yes for an answer. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? And, of course, the expected answer is yes. And, in fact, Jesus says, yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. So that's who John the Baptist is, is more than a prophet. So what does it mean, more than a prophet? We will see that John the Baptist is a unique prophet. How is he more than a prophet? Well, I'm going to give you a list here called from John Gill and Adam Clark. Number one. Other prophets prophesied of the Messiah at a distance. John pointed him out with his finger. Number two, other prophets prophesied in words not so clear and easy to understand. John baptized him. John baptized the Messiah. Number three, other prophets didn't die for the Messiah. John the Baptist did. Now, he hadn't done it yet, but he's going to. Number four, the circumstances of his birth were remarkable. Now, of course, this is in the first part of Luke. Remember, his father, Zechariah, was a priest serving in the temple. The angel Gabriel appeared to him, struck him dumb, said, you're going to name the baby John, and so forth, and he's going to be, he's going to be a prophet. So we can read about that in Luke. That's quite remarkable. No other Old Testament prophet had, that, had the story of his birth recorded in such remarkable detail. Number five. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. No other prophet, that is said of no other prophet. Number six, John was especially called to prepare the way for Jesus. No other prophet was called to, especially called to prepare the way for Jesus. Number seven, he was prophesied of. Other Old Testament prophets just prophesied about the Messiah. But John the Baptist actually had prophecies pointing to him. Most prophecies pointed out to other events or, in, or to the Messiah. But John the Baptist actually had a, prophesy, a prophecy pointing to him, coming into him. Scriptures that show this. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there you have John the Baptist is called a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. That's the seventh way that he was more than just a prophet. Number eight. He enjoyed the salvation of the Messiah personally. Other prophets merely foretold it. So he was more than a prophet, all right. More than a prophet. So Jesus rehabilitates John the Baptist pretty good here. Going on to verse 10, Jesus continues about John the Baptist. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1. I just read it to you. And Jesus quotes it. Let's read it again, Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you. That's probably 
talking about temporally because John the Baptist was six months ahead of Jesus. He was six months older, and he started his ministry probably about six months before Jesus did. Now, this preparation of the gospel, I will prepare your way before you. Oftentimes, it's not appreciated, I don't think, how much John the Baptist did for Jesus because it was probably on the account of John that so many thousands of people immediately attached themselves to Jesus when Jesus started speaking because people had already heard the message of repentance and Jesus picked right up on it and took it a little bit further. As soon as Christ publicly began to teach, people understood, oh, this is a continuation of what John the Baptist was talking about. John had prepared many people's hearts for repentance, so he prepared the way. Going to verse 11, Jesus continues, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All right, he's, he's finished his rehabilitation of John the Baptist with this final pronouncement. There's nobody greater than John the Baptist so far. And I gave you the eight reasons why he was greater than all the other Old Testament prophets. But now Jesus goes further in saying, but as great as John the Baptist was, there's something coming that's even greater. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And even a small fry in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. This is, this is, there's a huge difference in what John the Baptist was teaching and what I'm teaching. All right, here's some options as to why are Christians in a better position than John the Baptist. Remember, least in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is referring to the earthly temporal establishment of the kingdom. I don't think it refers, I could, but I, I'm going to, I don't think it refers to the kingdom of heaven in glory. Uh, the departed saints in heaven and so forth. I think he's talking about the church here on earth. And if you're in that church, you're in better shape than if you, you're greater actually than John the Baptist. Now, here's some options as to why Christians are in a better position than John the Baptist. First of all, Christians are the bride of the bridegroom Christ. John the Baptist is only the friend of the bridegroom. John 3 verse 29 says this, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride is the church, the bridegroom is Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Well, if you think about a wedding, do people, point, do people really focus on the best man, the friend of the best man? Or do they focus on that beautiful bride in her long white dress? Of course, the bride is the center of the wedding ceremony. John the Baptist was only the friend of the bride. He was the bridegroom. A child is least in the kingdom of heaven, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Least, a lot of times, refers to least in age, like James the Less, the son of Alphaeus. A lot of times, he's translated as James the Younger. He was least in the kingdom of heaven. As Christians as children and leaders, I should say, leaders as children and slaves. When In Luke 22, the leaders in the church are those who are least. That means those who are younger. Okay, so even a child. Now, even in the kingdom of heaven, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Somebody who's humble like a child. Matthew 18, verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loved humble people, folks. He loved humble people. All right, let's look at some options as to who these least are. I said they're least, they're younger, but we can try to narrow that down a little bit more. It could just mean Christians in general who were still alive at the time of Jesus. Why are they greater than John the Baptist? Well, they got to converse with Jesus more than John the Baptist had actually talked with Jesus. They actually got to walk around with him and talk with him. They had a better chance to see the miracles of Jesus than John had. John was in prison. Everybody else could see these great miracles that John could only hear about. And, of course, they eventually would have clear insight in, into the truths of the kingdom, particularly after the resurrection and Pentecost. And these Christian disciples converted more 
more sinners than John did because more people were following Jesus and the disciples than follow John. So that's why even Christians who were alive were greater than John the Baptist. Or it could mean, option B, is Christians who are in general still alive on the earth today, not back in Jesus' time. Well, they didn't get to see, converse with Jesus and see his miracles, but they have the same advantage that those Christians did. They have clear insight into the truths of the kingdom, particularly after the resurrection and Pentecost. John the Baptist never got to experience that. And, of course, the church today has converted a lot more sinners. We're up to about a billion or so now, I think, on the earth, converted more sinners than John did. So either way, and I think that's option B is correct. It's talking about Christians in general who are still alive. Now, John Gill, the creative John Gill, has got an interesting option here. He said the one who is least is Jesus himself. Yet Jesus is the least in the kingdom of heaven. However, he is greater than John the Baptist. Why is Jesus least or less than he was younger, he started preaching after John did, and he was held in less esteem by the Pharisees than John was. I find that hard to believe. John Gill reminds me of creative accountants. Creativity is a great thing, but not when you're talking about accounting. And creativity is a great thing, except when it comes up with stuff that's theologically kind of screwy. John Gill also comes up with another idea that the least in the kingdom of heaven is somebody in glory, a departed saint, not someone still alive on the earth, because... Boy, once you're in heaven, you're in a better position than John, than John the Baptist is here on earth. I don't think, I think Gil's wrong on that too. And a lot of times Gil just suggests these things. It doesn't say, he doesn't necessarily believe them. He just says this is a possible option. But at any rate, Christians in general are greater than John the Baptist because if we have the Holy Spirit teaching us. We have seen greater conversions, greater miracles, and that kind of thing. All right, so let's go to Matthew 11, verse well, first of all, what does it mean to be greater? Christians are greater. What does exactly does it mean to be greater? Does it mean greater in ministry, or does it mean greater in holiness or devotedness to God? I'm not really sure what it means. I think it means greater in ministry. Adam Clark supports that and rejects the idea that it's greater in holiness or devotedness to God. John the Baptist was pretty holy and pretty devoted to God. It's kind of hard to beat him, but his ministry was not as great as the ministry of the church later on. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. What does that mean? Two options. Uh, persecution. People who are coming to the kingdom of heaven will suffer persecution. Violence means persecution. They'll suffer persecution. And violent men, persecutors, take the kingdom and shake it by force, kind of that idea. I don't think that's it. I think it means that the people who want to get into the kingdom are violently beating on the gates, trying to get in. It refers to, as John Gill says, the ardency and fervency of spirit of those who want to get in. The NIV Study Bible agrees and says that violent men enter the kingdom and become Christ's disciples because to do so took spiritual courage, vigor, power, and determination because of all the persecution. I think that's what it is. Here's a good quote from John Gill. Persons as being powerfully wrought upon under the ministry of the gospel who were under violent apprehensions of wrath and vengeance of their lost and undone state and condition by nature were violently in love with Christ and eagerly desirous of salvation by him and communion with him and had their affections set upon the things of another world. Those having the gospel preached to them, which is a declaration of God's love to sinners, a proclamation of peace and pardon, and a publication of righteousness and life by Christ. They greedily catched at it and embraced it. Yes, sir, buddy. Those people meant business. Compare that to these silly, fluffy, lukewarm Christians who can't decide whether they're going to give up their career or their boyfriend or whatever to follow Jesus. 
Now, John, it sounds like Jesus has gone back to rehabilitating John because he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. In other words, he's already talked about the Old Testament prophets. John is greater than the Old Testament prophets. But now, the time from John the Baptist until now, now is the time when God's really moving. And the reason that they're really moving is because John's preaching was there. His preaching was part of the reason so many violent men were violently seizing the kingdom because of John the Baptist. So I think it's a little implied shout out for John the Baptist here. Things are going well, and John the Baptist had a part in it, even though he's in jail. Matthew 11, chapter 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And the implication is the past tense here is what gives us the key. All the prophets and the law in the past prophesied of John, but John's here right now, and look what's happening. <laughs> look what's happening. The gospel is spreading everywhere. Didn't spread like that in the Old Testament. But right now, after John's ministry, it's spreading all over the place. Violent men are taking the kingdom by force. Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, Jesus is still heaping praise on John the Baptist and compares him to Elijah the prophet. And in fact, fulfills a prophecy of Elijah coming. He says, if you are willing to accept it, this shows that he probably thinks there's some hardness of heart in the crowd that some are not willing to accept it. In fact, he, in the next verse, he says, if you have ears to hear, hear, and of course, there are some people who don't have ears to hear. Well, Jesus points out, and Jesus, of course, knew the scripture. He pointed out that John was Elijah, and this is what he did. He went back and quoted Malachi 4, 5. Well, actually, he didn't quote uh, Malachi 4, 5. He was referring to Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, note, first of all, let's note here that the great and terrible day of the Lord is not the end of the world. It can't be. It's referring to the destruction of, temp of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans, as Adam Clark points out. The reason is because John the Baptist was there then, and, and he fulfilled it then. He doesn't fulfill it at the end of the world. He fulfilled it then, 40 years before, one generation before the destruction of the temple. Now, John the Baptist was not literally Elijah, but he was like him. How? He was equal to Elijah in the power of his prophesying. In his temper and disposition, he was equal to, or alike, he was like Elijah in his temper and disposition. He wore the same type of clothing. He had the same austere way of living. He had the same piety and holiness. Now, since we've mentioned Malachi several times in connection with John the Baptist, let's just summarize the passages in Malachi. They tell us three things about John the Baptist. Number one, that John the Baptist was a forerunner and a messenger preparing the way of the Lord. This is Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that mean, the Lord will come into his temple? Some people say this is church. Some people say it's the physical temple in Jerusalem. Whatever it means, it's obvious this is referring to John the Baptist. So that's the first characteristic of John the Baptist in Malachi 3.1. The second characteristic of, of John the Baptist in Malachi 4.5, which I just read uh, a little while ago, is that, the, that John the Baptist would appear before the destruction of the second temple, the coming great and terrible day of the Lord. Malachi 4.5, I'll read it again. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's Malachi 4, 5. So that's the second way that John was foretold, was described in Malachi. And the third way is that John would preach repentance to the Jews. Malachi 4, 6. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So three ways 
Now, th- this last verse here, Malachi 4, 6, presents a problem. I'm not exactly sure how to handle this, but let's just summarize the three ways that John the Baptist is predicted uh, from Malachi. First of all, in Malachi 3, 1, he's the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. In Malachi, and second of all, in Malachi 4, 5, he's Elijah, that it comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the destruction of the temple. And the third way, characteristic of John the Baptist, as predicted by Malachi, is that he should preach repentance to the Jews and restore the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, the problem here is that Jesus, John is preaching a message of reconciliation, but that message was ultimately rejected, and the land was smitten with a curse in AD 70. So the question might arise, how can it be said that John restored the hearts of the fathers to the children, since that didn't happen? Well, the way I handle that is that he was restoring the hearts of the fathers to the children of those who repented. Not everybody repented, of course. They didn't, but of those who he spoke to, the, basically it was a message of reconciliation and repentance. And that's when you repent, when one repents, that's going to solve a lot of these family divisions and problems that occur. To say that John's message of reconciliation failed you, because of what happened in 8070, you could say the same thing about Jesus, too. You know, you could say, well, his message failed. They didn't listen to him, and so Israel went down. No, I don't think so. All right, let's go to verse 15 in Matthew 11. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a common saying of Jesus, and it, uh, it was actually, it was a, I think it was a, used in Jewish culture all the time. Anything serious, anything great, anything important, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, of course, that assumes that some people don't have ears to hear. They won't hear. The most profound spiritual truth to just stop the ears up. Here's a great quote from Adam Clark showing that. Neither the, neither the Jews of that time nor of the succeeding times to the present day have heard or considered these things, the things of Jesus. When spoken to on these subjects, their common custom is to stop their ears, spit out, and blaspheme. This shows not only a bad, but a ruined cause. They are deeply and willfully blind, and we can only pray for the day that they stop being blind and come flocking into the kingdom in massive numbers, which I think is starting to happen these days. Previous half of the chapter, the first half, was concerning John the Baptist, where Jesus is trying to rehabilitate John because apparently he showed some doubt about whether Jesus is true Messiah. The reason for that was he was in prison. Jesus not only reassures John that he's the Messiah, he then rehabilitates John and talks about what a great and fantastic prophet he was. Now we get to the last part of this chapter, and Jesus is going to compare John to... He's going to contrast John with the nasty Pharisees and Sadducees and the unbelieving people in the cities around where he's ministering. So this is going to be a half chapter of denunciation, starting with verse 16 and 17 verses 16 and 17 in Matthew 11. Jesus says this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. And basically what the image here is kids playing, and there's one group of kids that act like a bunch of blockheads. It doesn't matter what you do, you can't get them to dance. You can't get them to to play along with the game here. You can't get them, if you place a flute, which is happy music, they don't dance. They just sit there like stones, and then it's okay, we'll sing a dirge. Well, they don't pretend like they're mourning. Well, what's the metaphor? Well, the flute represents Jesus's ministry. He played a flute to that generation, which means he brought them good news good news of regeneration, peace, hope, victory, 
all the spiritual things that come from Jesus' ministry, and the Pharisees did not listen. So then John the Baptist, when he came to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he sang a dirge by saying that the axe was at the root of the trees. He called them a whole bunch of bad names, if you recall. They still didn't respond to that either. So it doesn't matter whether you come to the Pharisees with messages of judgment or whether you come to the Pharisees and Sadducees with messages of hope and redemption. It doesn't matter. They don't listen because they're spiritual blockheads. We go to verses verses 18 and 19 in Matthew 11. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. John coming neither eating nor drinking, that refers to the, to the fact that John's disciples fasted a lot. If you recall that controversy or that question that the, that the, disciples, brought, the disciples of John the Baptist brought to Jesus, How come you're not fasting? And we are fasting. Jesus says, and Jesus answered, well, because the, 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 the groom is here and we don't fast at a wedding feast. You, know, you recall that story. Well, this is how the Pharisees were. They say, okay, we look at John's disciples and they're fasting. And then they say to John's disciples, you got a demon. So then the Son of Man, on the contrary, he doesn't fast and his disciples don't fast. And they're celebrating and they're preaching a victorious, glorious message. And then the Pharisees say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Jesus is not fasting, so he's gluttonous, as if the opposite of not fasting is gluttony, which is absurd. That would make everybody on earth a glutton. And they say he's a drunkard. Why? Because he drank a little bit of wine. And he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, horrible, horrible. He's trying to tell people that sinners need salvation, and and therefore the, the Pharisees, in response, condemn him for that. So it doesn't matter whether it's John the Baptist or whether it's Jesus. And again, Jesus is trying to vindicate John the Baptist. He's continuing with that theme by, by pointing out that it's not John's fault. It's the Pharisees and how they re- reacted. And there's not any contrast between Jesus and John. Their ministers were different. John's preaching damnation and condemnation. Jesus is preaching salvation. There wasn't any contradiction in their ministry. They were united in one purpose, and they were opposed in a common front by the evil Pharisees. Jesus finishes off this. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Who is that wisdom? Well, the NIV study Bible and John Gill say that the wisdom refers to God because God sent both John the Baptist and Jesus, and the result's going to be wonderful, and the Pharisees are not going to like the results, and so God is going to be vindicated by sending two different kinds of people to the Pharisees. He sent a prophet, John, and then he sent the Son of Man the Messiah, Jesus. It could be the gospel is vindicated by her deeds. It could be Jesus himself is vindicated by his deeds. So it's not really clear here. It could be God the Father or God the Son. But the point is, is that God is going to be vindicated. And Jesus is going to be vindicated because of what they did. And what they did was not it was not gluttony and was not having a demon. We go to, let's talk about this eating thing, about how John did not eat. John the Baptist, John Gill says this. 
He ate sparingly, very little, and what he did eat and drink was not the common food and drink of men. He neither ate bread nor drank wine, but lived upon locust and wild honey. He excused all invitations to people's houses and shunned all feasts and entertainments. He abstained from all free and sociable conversation with men in eating and drinking. And, of course, Jesus did exactly the opposite. Pharisees didn't know how to deal with it. that. They just knew that they hated both of them. All right, I have now returned from my splice of my discussion of Matthew 11, 2-19, which exactly parallels Luke 7, 18-35. I say exactly, except for some details. So that will end this audio. The next audio in Luke chapter 7, we will take up Jesus, a sinful woman who was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house and who brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Good story. We'll see you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.